much better to have it right there and be able to look down and follow along. Um, so we have some at the back. If you don't have a Bible, just put your hand up and someone will grab one for you. Today we're going to look at this section of Scripture where Paul talks about really his life motto. And I think there are a lot of lessons to learn from Paul and this motto uh, that he gives us in verse 21. Um, I believe that the Lord has things that he wants to do to speak to us as we look at his word today. So let's pray and ask him to do just that. Lord, we thank you for your word and we thank you that you are a living God. And you know who we are, you know what's going on in our lives right now, you know where we've come from, and you know where we're to be going. And Lord, in that, we, you know what's best for us. And so we ask you, Lord, to speak to us today as we look at your word. Would you speak? Would you speak to us in our particular situations? Would you speak to us with the things that we need to know for our lives? Would you speak to us and bring life like those dry bones, Lord? Um, would you bring life as you speak to us? That we would go from this place refreshed in you, recommissioned in you, having our faith renewed, being changed being deepened in our worship. All these wonderful things, Lord, would you do as your word is preached. Lord, we thank you for your grace. Lord, I am a weak and a sinful man before you, but I thank you for the blood of Christ and, and the grace that you've given. And through this, Lord, I can serve you so and serve your precious people. So grant power now in your Holy Spirit. Give us ears to hear you, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Chapter 1. We'll start in verse, uh, end of verse 18, go through verse 26. Paul is talking to the Philippians, his dear friends. He's talking to them about his imprisonment. He's talking to them about life in Christ. And he's speaking of his particular situation, but also instructing them as he says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. God's Word, Philippians 1, 18-26. We uh, are all inspired by stories of great heroism, people who were full of courage and singular purpose. One of my 
heroes among many is a man named Jeremiah Denton. Perhaps you know him. He was a naval officer who started his career in 1947, and uh, within 10 years, he had actually revolutionized Navy strategy. He had written uh, a, a prestigious paper on international affairs, and then he served in Vietnam. He was a commanding officer of an attack squadron, uh, and he was on July 18, 1965, flying an A-6 intruder over the Vietnamese city of Phan Hoa. Their plane was shot down, and the two men were captured, and he was held prison, prisoner for about eight years, four of, which, four of which were spent in solitary confinement at the famous Hanoi Hilton. That's where John McCain was held, among some other notable people in history. Life in Hanoi Hilton consisted of rope bindings, irons, beatings, and prolonged solitary confinement. And this was done to not only obtain information, but to break the will of the prisoners so that then they could be used as a public relations stunt uh, to publicly renounce the United States on television. The results of this torture and all that went on were things were, were murder, broken bones, teeth, broken eardrums, dislocated limbs, starvation, serving of food contaminated with feces, medical neglect of infections, tropical diseases, all these things. And we know Senator McCain is permanently disabled from his torture. They agreed on the following policy as prisoners together. They said, take physical torture until you're right at the edge of losing your ability to be rational. At that point, Lie, do, or say whatever you must to survive, but first take the physical torture. So they agreed together that they would take the torture and not give in. Denton, uh, Jeremiah Denton is known for a famous interview given in 1966. He was put on TV. He was put on TV in uh, front of, of his live TV, from what I understand, and the North Vietnamese interviewed him. And, and while he was interviewed, he answered the questions... And he was actually, before that interview, he was tortured and told that if you don't do this interview right, we're going to kill you. So he went into this interview, and he was supposed to renounce the United States on television in front of everybody. What he did is he sat there blinking. He sat there blinking, and he was a naval officer. He knew Morse code. He sat there blinking out the word, well, out the letters T O R. T-U-R-E, because the Vietnamese were, the North Vietnamese were denying that anyone was torturing prisoners, and so he Morse code torture while he's sitting there, and then said to the interviewer, as he was asked this, these questions and was supposed to renounce his country, he said, I don't know what is happening, but whatever the position of my government is, I support it fully. Whatever the position of my government, I believe in it. Yes, sir, I'm a member of that government, and it is my job to support it, and I will as long as I live. You can actually access that interview on YouTube and, and, and watch it and watch him courageously and ingeniously. They didn't pick up on the, the Morse code, blinking out torture. Well, he was um, tortured for that, obviously, but he endured and he, uh, he was eventually released, and he's a very well-decorated uh, veteran and, and uh, actually continued to serve in the Navy, then became a senator. And he was a senator uh, for the state of Alabama. And it's just an amazing story. It's a wonderful story of Jeremiah Denton uh, and, and what he went through. 
What would it have been like if somehow Jeremiah Denton was able to write a letter to us during his imprisonment? What would it have been like to have received a letter from him to us as Americans? What would he have said? And and how would that have affected us to hear from this man who was going through torture and was yet staying strong and with a singular purpose to continue to serve his country, even if it meant torture and death? Incredible courage to, to do what he did. What would it have been like to receive that letter and read through it? Well, that's what we have in the letter to the Philippians. The situation is different. The cause is different. The cause is a greater cause. It's Christ himself. The situation was a little bit different that Paul probably was not being tortured, but was being mistreated. It was not easy to be imprisoned. And he writes this letter to the Philippians. And he writes it to instruct them. He writes it to teach them. And he writes it to give them really a core motto. That is not just Paul's motto, but is to be our motto. That's this motto in verse 21. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's the title of the message, and that is the main point. Paul's motto, to live is Christ, to die is gain. What I want to do as we dig into this section of Scripture is I want to walk you through. I want to walk you through what Paul says. I want you to understand his thinking. So we're just going to walk through what he says and kind of look at the, the, the layout of it, the flow of thought. Because I think that's important for us. I don't want you just to, to take it on faith that, you know, this is what Pastor Paul says this passage is about. I want you to be able to see it for yourself. And then I want to kind of dig deeper, drill down deeper into some of the things in the passage that I think the Lord wants us to focus on. So follow with me as we go through, as we look at the flow of thought, starting in verse 18. Paul says, yes, and I will rejoice. He's been talking about rejoicing, about the gospel being preached, and now he talks about rejoicing for another reason. The book of Philippians is full of reasons to rejoice. He says, yes, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. So he's rejoicing. Why? Because he, he knows that this, that this imprisonment, that, that this current trial will, in the end, turn out for his deliverance. Now, he knows that that's going to happen. It's going to be through their prayers. So he includes them. There's a partnership. He's calling them to uh, participate, a friendship, a gospel friendship. I need your prayers. And he also talks about the help of the Holy, Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus Christ. One Holy Spirit, sometimes called the Spirit of God, sometimes the Spirit of Jesus Christ. It's the same, the Holy Spirit. So he knows through their prayers and the help of the Spirit. And it might be that Paul's saying that it's that as you pray, I experience the power of the Spirit. I experience the help of the Spirit. And the help of the Spirit there may, may be uh, material help. It may be the help that will come as he goes to trial. Now, he's going to trial. He's going to stand before the emperor. And before the emperor, uh, he's going to be asked questions. And really, that trial, his life is at stake at that trial. Because the emperor, if, if the emperor quits him, He's free to be released. And probably, if the emperor quits him, it is also implicitly endorsing Christianity, in a sense, saying it's okay to be a Christian. It's a legitimate religion in Rome. And that was very important in the day. The other side of it is the emperor doesn't like what he says. He's sentenced to death. And then that might lead to further persecution for the church as well. So the help of the Spirit is one of the things, I think, is the help that is needed at that moment to stand before this emperor. And testify. Jesus had promised that he would give his 
servants the words to speak. And so that's part of what I think he's getting at. So through your prayers and the help of the Spirit, and how important the prayers of, of God's people for those in situations like this is, this will turn out for my deliverance, he says. Now, the word here in the ESV is deliverance, but the word actually is usually translated salvation, the original word. So he says that this will turn out for my salvation. And it looks like Paul, when he says that, he's lifting an exact quote from the book of Job. Uh, it's exactly worded how it is in the book of Job. And it's in uh, Job chapter 13, if you want, we won't go there, but uh, Job is talking about eventually standing before God, or, or standing, not actually standing before God in his situation, but standing before God and, and being able to be vindicated before God, being able to experience the salvation of God, to be delivered from his woes and delivered from his sin in the presence of God. So when Paul says that this will turn out for my deliverance and quotes Job, He's talking about more than just the fact that I think I'm going to get out of jail. I think that's part of what he's getting at. But he's also, you'll see as we go through it, that he's also saying basically, I, I, this will turn out for my deliverance, my salvation, whether I die and go to be with the Lord or I get out of jail and go to see you guys again and serve with you. So he's living, looking forward to this salvation. The salvation that he has, the, the eventual uh, the eventual experience of being with the Lord, being received in the Lord's presence, being forgiven and with him is what's in mind here. Not just getting out of jail, but the whole thing. And then he says in verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So he's looking forward to that trial but he's thinking beyond just the trial, beyond just the imprisonment. He's thinking about life. Do you see that flow? Do you see what he's doing here? He's saying, guys, it's not just about my imprisonment. Like he said elsewhere, right? Earlier on in Philippians, he's saying, guys, it isn't just about prison. It isn't just about a prison report. This isn't just about my trial. This isn't just about me being in prison and getting out. This is about life. And Philippians, this is about you as well. I'm saying these things so that you would understand and see my life example and live it there in Philippi. You may not be in prison in Philippi, but you're called to the same way of life and all that you do. And as a matter of fact, your current disunity and strife that you're experiencing will be dealt with when you understand these truths and live this way where you are. Now, it applies to the Philippians that way. It applies to us as well. And God has preserved his word. He's preserved the book of Philippians for us so that we would hear what Paul's saying and connect it to our lives and understand that this perspective on life is to be our perspective on life. And that when we understand these things and live these things, we live a life worthy of the gospel, which he's going to talk about in the next paragraph we'll get to next week. When we live this way, we live worthy of the gospel. We live in a fitting response. We produce the fruit of the gospel in our lives as well. So he wants to honor Christ no matter what, whether by life or by death. It's his desire. And he says in verse 21, this perhaps well-known verse, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He actually, uh, it, he says it perhaps even more bluntly than that. If you were to be more literal in your translation, he says, for me to live, Christ. And to die, gain. 
So he's emphasizing for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And then he goes on from there to talk more. And we're going to dig into this, by the way, in case you're thinking, oh, no, don't move on. We'll get, we'll get back to this. He says, if I'm to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. So Paul understands if, if he lives, it's about laboring. It's about fruitful labor. It's about serving the Lord. It's about producing good fruit. And for him and his particular call as an apostle, that means sowing the gospel and planting churches and building up churches so that they can be healthy and plant other churches. So fruitful labor for me. Yet, listen what he says. As good as that all sounds, he says, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. What's he talking about? Choosing between life and death. I don't know. I cannot tell which to choose. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ. For that, it's far better. Paul's basically saying, you know what? Dying is actually a kind of really nice prospect. Certainly, he would never take his life, but if God ordained that his life was going to be taken, that's better. It's far better. It's far better. His desire, if he could have it his way, apart from all other considerations, his desire would to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. But he says, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary. Why? On your account. For your good. For the good of the church. For the good of others. It's more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. That's the flow of thought. I hope that helps you understand what Paul's saying and, and touching on the, the key things. What I want to do is to dig in, to drill down a little bit into certain aspects. I want, to, I want to focus on verse 21. Because verse 21, I think, is the core of this paragraph. It's, a, it's kind of everything else Paul's saying is either pointing to or flowing from what he says in verse 21. This motto of Paul, to live is Christ. Then I want to talk a little bit about how that produces fruit in Paul's life. And, and if we have enough time, I'll, I'll talk a number of ways about that and, and talk about how that applies to us. Because I, the core here, if we get verse 21, there's lots of good fruit that flows from it. There's good fruit for Paul. There's good fruit for us. So let's, let's dig into verse 21. And I think you have notes to, to follow along as well. Verse 21 says, For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Paul's saying, this is my motto, guys. This is, this is how I think of life. This is how I think of myself. This is how I think of my prison situation. This is how I think about when I get out. This is how I think about my eternity. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. It's interesting that he starts out saying, for to me. And we could mis maybe mistakenly think, well, does he mean like, you know, to me, well, to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. I don't know what it is for you, but this is my thing, you know, and it's just kind of an apostolic thing you wouldn't understand. This is, this is just me, but that, that's not what he's saying. He's not saying, for to me, this is kind of to each his own, for to you, you know, it's some other motto. But for me, to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. What's your motto? And all models are equal. That's not what he's saying, actually. Certainly it is for to him. This is his model. This is the thing that defines his life. This is how he lives. It is for him, but he's not saying it's just for him. For a matter of fact, Paul will later on in verse uh, 17 of chapter 3 say, Brothers, this is audacious what he says here, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. 
saying, guys, this is how you should live. He's saying that to the Philippians. You should live like this. This should be your motto. Follow my example. And the, the, the folks that are in the church that kind of got, got that truth too, the ones that get verse 21 and you know they get it, follow them. Imitate them. Be like them. This is true for the Philippians. It's true for King of Grace Church as well. It's true for all of God's people, every Christian. Really, every human being is called to this, to repent, believe the gospel, and walk in this. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Is to be all of our mottos. We all are to say this and believe this. And it's interesting how stark and bold what he says is. A very simple, stark statement. Notice that he doesn't say to live, to live for me, to live includes Christ. For me to live includes Christ. He's part of my life. He's part of my life along with other things. Uh, not to criticize this bumper sticker, but God is my co-pilot. Um, nothing wrong with that necessarily, but sometimes that can be our philosophy with Christ, right? Christ is my co-pilot. He's the co-pilot. What's the promise, problem with that bumper sticker is that God is supposed to be the pilot. Now, that doesn't mean sit in the passenger seat and just let your car go wherever. Uh, and so that does, that's why we don't Different context. But anyhow, the, the, the point is that God is not to be a co-pilot. And that's, Paul's not saying God is, Christ is my co-pilot. Christ, uh, for me to live, includes Christ. I have him here. He's nice. I've got my plastic Jesus sitting on the dashboard of my car. Life is good. That's not what he's saying. But also he doesn't say to live is Christ and all these other things. So, so he doesn't say Christ is kind of equal with everything else. He's just kind of included. Matter of fact, there's no one else on the stage but Christ. He's not saying to live is Christ plus my spouse. Or to live is Christ plus my kids. Or to live is Christ plus my church. Or Christ plus my job or Christ plus whatever. There are a lot of legitimate things that are to be part of our lives, but he, Paul doesn't mention those things. He, he doesn't say to live is Christ and his kingdom. He doesn't say any of that. Now, those things have their place. I don't, don't get me wrong. But Paul doesn't say that. He does not qualify this. He does not qualify it. He is bold and stark in saying that for me, to live is Christ. This is what my life is about. Simply, starkly, boldly, to live is Christ. Not anything else. My life is centered on Christ. He is my life. It isn't Christ plus anything else. It is Christ. To live is Christ. Could you say the same as Paul? Could you say the same as Paul, to live is Christ? Or if you look at your heart, is it to live is something else? Being honest with yourself, is to live is partying? To live is my friends? To live is pleasure? To live is Sex? 
To live is my job? What is it for you, if you're honest about your life? To live is what? Maybe you've come to the Lord and you've recognized, I don't want to live to be partying or these other things. I want it to be Christ. But maybe over time, that statement, the real statement of your life is not to live is Christ starkly and boldly, but it's to live is Christ in my church or Christ in my family. Christ in my job. All legitimate things, all things that are to flow from that relationship with Christ, but are not to be on the same stage with Christ. Does that make sense? And what can happen in our lives is that functionally, it becomes to live is Christ plus something else. That we're not looking to Christ alone, resting in Christ alone, valuing Christ alone, defining ourselves by Christ alone. There are other things that function right alongside Christ. And our delight and our treasure is that other thing with Christ, not Christ himself who is sufficiently worthy, sufficiently able to take center stage and to be the only one on stage. Paul says, for me, to live is Christ. Now we can look at Paul's life and see more of the picture and understand more of the picture for this man and how he could say this here. And, 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 and don't, don't get Paul wrong. Paul doesn't in here talk about his struggles, but he's a man who struggled. He didn't do this perfectly. But by and large, he could say, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. And by his grace, as he experienced his grace, this was a truth for him. And we see that in the rest of Philippians. In chapter 3, we see the heart of Paul, and his life is really on display in this letter to his dear friends in Philippi. He speaks about his life in chapter 3, verse 7. And he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And he's talking about, specifically in this context, He's talking about the idea of being righteous before God. In in Philippians and elsewhere, this word righteous is used. And it's not a word we understand in our culture real well because we don't go around and talk about, well, I really want to be righteous. That's my life goal. Um, Your friends would think you're nuts if you said that. So it's not a word we're familiar with. It was a word that would have been very familiar to Paul and and to uh, the Jews of the day. And righteousness is is really being in right standing before God. It's doing and being the right person and the right thing. It's really, in a sense, uh, being, uh, living, living a life that's worthy, being someone that's worthy. It really speaks of worth and worthiness. Worth before God, worthiness before God. That's righteousness. It's, it's, and in the particular, it means being without sin before God, being blameless, being at peace with God in right relationship with God and, 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 in a sense, meriting his acceptance. And so Paul's talking about his righteousness and, and, and then his righteousness without Christ through the law as a, as a very uh, faithful Jew. And he says in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. And he uses that word gain again. We'll talk about that later. To die is gain. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss. Now, Paul had a lot of gain. He had, really, what the world wants. To kind of think of a contemporary illustration, just picture Paul, if we 
moved him into this century, and he had to be somebody, you know, who, rep, who was equivalent of what he was in his time. He would be, uh, just imagine if one of the Kennedys married one of Billy Graham's children and, and had a kid. That would be Paul. Um, and then he went to Harvard, and he studied under the top, you know, teacher. And then he became the press secretary for the president. That's Paul. That's who he is, all right? That's who he is in their culture. That's who he is. And he's faithfully, faithfully following uh, what he understood to be righteousness, what he understood to be the best life that he could live. And he encounters Christ. And he sees in Christ, he sees in Christ the righteousness of God. He sees in Christ the one who is glorious, the only one who could ever fulfill the law and do all things right, the only one who could ever earn God's favor, the, the one who was perfect. And he sees in Christ the one who took this righteousness and offered it up on the cross to pay for sinners like himself, the unrighteous. To, to, through the shedding of his blood, to cover sins, to lead to forgiveness, and to be an acceptable sacrifice to the Father. So on his behalf, all those who come to him in faith, turning from their sins, saying, my righteousness is rubbish, turning and saying, I need Jesus and only him. He's everything I need, and, and, and I need him only. He, he, he experienced that. He understood that, and he considered that all that he had. He gave up all that he had as rubbish in comparison with Jesus, the righteousness of God. And he knew that in Christ, he was counted righteous, received. He counted Jesus as his everything. So he says, verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. He saw Christ as far better and more glorious than anything he could ever, ever know otherwise. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. I count them as rubbish in order to gain Christ. This is the Christ he knew. This is the Christ he knew who was of surpassing worth that in comparison to all the other things that he had, all the things that the world would want, that, that he was made those things look as rubbish. Is that the Christ you know? That's the Christ of the Scriptures. That's the Christ we're called to know and to encounter. And when by the power of the Holy Spirit through the preaching of the gospel, we taste and see that God is good. We see the glory of God in Christ. We see that he is righteousness alone. He alone is the righteousness of God. Then when we see that in the power of God, we do have the power to say that stuff is rubbish in comparison with him. And the power in your life to put off the other things and to put on Christ comes from seeing him as glory. That's what went on in Paul's life. He counted all things as rubbish in comparison with Christ. When you see something better, it adds perspective. There are things in my life, I was just thinking about this, this reality in my life. Uh, we, have, we have been a family that kind of, well, how do I say it? We, uh, we trash pick a little bit. Um, my wife's probably very embarrassed, but if somebody puts out something really good in their trash, we have no problem getting it. 
Uh, we have no problem taking it home. And, and we have some pretty nice things, actually, that we've got out of the trash. Um, for those who have been to our house, some of the furniture in our living room is trash furniture. Uh, and, but it's interesting how that works because when you find it in the trash, you, you, you look at it and go, oh, this is great. I, we have this all leather seat that we got. Wow, there's a leather seat. Now, yeah, I know the, the linkage is broken. It doesn't quite, it's not straight, but it's wonderful, this leather seat. And you bring it in your house and it looks really good. But then when you eventually, and this has happened to us, we, did, we had a bed for years that was trash. But we liked it. It worked. We never thought of anything. Then one day we were able to afford a, a new bed. Uh, a couple of years ago, we got this really nice sleigh bed. Um, and it's just beautiful. Uh, and now we look back at that old headboard we had and that old stuff, and it's like, that stuff's rubbish. Maybe you sitting back in those red seats right now, and you're used to the metal seats, you feel the same. This, that, that, those metal seats were rubbish. We hope we never see them again. That beautiful, beautiful red seats. And that's what went on in Paul's life. The other stuff, in the perspective of seeing Christ, it just, it just rubbish. And he gladly says, Christ is worthy. And I can go to prison. And I can face torture and possible death. I can face these things because I have Christ. I have him. And that's where the power to live the way he did came from. That's what he's calling the Philippians to. That's what God is calling us to. When you see the worth of Christ. When you see that he's your righteousness, he's righteous before God, and in him you are counter-righteous and received and loved and grace pours over your life. You are accepted because of the free gift and you realize that he'll be with you always and he has a plan for your life. When you behold those things, everything else fades away and finds its proper place. That's what Paul is teaching us here in this passage this is what he's calling us to in this passage. And whether you are a Christian or not, the call is the same. To behold Christ. To turn from the other things. To put them in their place. So if you're yet to be a believer in Christ, the call is to see all those other choices you're making as rubbish in comparison to what you're offered and can have in Christ. And the call for every believer is the same. Now, for you, it may not be, as a believer, things that are hardcore sin. It may be. And believers struggle and stumble into some hardcore sin. But maybe it's some other secondary thing. Some other thing that's good and is part of life in Christ. Something as good as even your marriage and as important as that is. Or your kids. Or your church. Or your job. All important. But not to be there in the same place as Christ. And maybe for you, the call is today to say, you know what, Jesus, I've put something else there functionally. When I think of the Christian life, I think about this. And you're not in the picture. I think of what I need to do with my family or whatever it might be. And don't hear what I'm not saying, by the way. There are tons of implications of having Christ in those other areas, but they're not to take preeminence. Christ alone is to be your life. To live is Christ. To die is gain. Paul can say those things, and, and because for him to live is Christ and uh, to die is gain, he can look and deal with life and deal with this trial, with uh, his imprisonment in a very different way. He can look at it very differently. 
And for him, when he says to live is Christ, to live is Christ, that's, the, that's the, really the central thing he's saying. But to die is gain fits right with it because he knows as a believer, to live is Christ. And when he dies, it's even more of Christ. So in a sense, he's saying to live is Christ. And if you follow what he, the argument, to live is Christ and to die is Christ. To live is Christ and to find my life in Christ and to labor for Christ. To die is Christ and to be with Christ and to be with him in fullness, unhindered. And that's far better. To live is Christ. To die is gain, Paul says. It, it's, it's an amazing statement if you think about it. To die is gain. Are you serious, Paul? Do you mean to die is gain? Do you really mean it? Do you understand how hard death is and how awful death? When I think of death, I, I don't think first thing to die is gain. Loss of loved ones can be devastating. It's hard to say goodbye to someone. It, 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 it can be like taking a part of ourselves out. And, and, and I, I don't think I ever quite understood it, and though I've had lost lots of precious people, but I don't think I quite understood it until my dad passed last March. And, and I certainly uh, was sorrowful, and my dad's with the Lord, so there's joy in that. <clears throat> but I started to, to, to recognize something in me that had changed when my dad was gone. All of a sudden, I, I didn't know this was there. And in, in Proverbs 17 says, the glory of sons is their fathers. And I didn't know that, that that was functioning in my life in a significant way because one of the things that my dad and I did together was, is we just talked about things. And he was somebody I could talk to about ambitions and achievements in a way that, that he would hear that and he would delight and those things. And, and there was just pleasure I had in talking to my dad and sharing those things. And I didn't realize how significant it was in my life, how, how just his, his, his approval. And, and it was healthy. It wasn't like I went around, you know, trying to do everything to make my dad happy. I think it was a healthy relationship with my dad. And, and his, just his endorsement and approval of things meant the world to me. And it wasn't until he was gone that I started realizing, you know what, that, that's gone now. And there was a moment where I said, I, I, I said, I almost felt like, why do anything if I don't have my dad to share it with? Now, I'm not there, but I felt that. And so for Paul to say to die is gain in light of what death can feel like, and, and death can seem like this merciless enemy more than a friend, it can. How can he say to die is gain? Because for the believer, it's right there in Scripture, to die is gain because to die is to depart and be with Christ. To depart and be with the one who is all glorious. To depart and be in his presence. To have sin and this body of flesh stripped away. To be glorified. To behold him in all his goodness. To taste and experience the kingdom that is coming in its fullness soon. To be there with him in, in bliss and joy and worship. We can't even describe it. The words, words fail us to describe what it means to be with the Lord. So, so, so Peter says, he calls it indescribable joy in the book of 1 Peter. It's indescribable. You don't even know how great it is to be with him and to await his soon his return will he'll come back and establish a new earth and we'll have new bodies and and so that to die is to be with the lord it is gain it's gain for my dad my dad has no trouble right now he's doing very well he doesn't need my sympathy 
To die is gain for the believer. Death is a friend for the believer. It's a friend because it ushers you into the presence of God. And there's no better place to be. It's better. I know I've told this story before, and it's very meaningful to me, and I, I think to you as well, perhaps, but we need to get this. We need to get this model. We need to understand, we need to get this truth that to live is Christ and to die is gain. It needs to be our life model. It needs to define who we are and how we live. And a friend of mine, a friend of yours, who got this was Jonathan Mark, and I've told this story perhaps before. Um, uh, if you don't know the story of John Mark, uh, he came up with us on the church plant and, and, um, and served and married a wonderful woman, Julianne, who's here with us. And uh, just after a year and four months in their marriage, he was diagnosed with cancer and he battled well. It was a two-year battle. And in June of 2009, he, uh, he went to be with the Lord. And I had the privilege of being there with, with John and um, Julianne and her dad and in hospice, and Jonathan died very well, and he got this verse. He got it, and he actually said it, his last words that he repeated over and over again. Because he understood, for the believer to die is gain, it's far better to be with the Lord and to submit to his will, even though there was fruitful labor, perhaps, for John to do, a married life, life in the church, life with extended family. He didn't want to die. He wanted to stay in labor. He dreamed. He and I had talked about church planning together. He dreamed of a church going up in the north somewhere. Um, he wanted to stay, but he knew the Lord was wise, and he knew it was better. And so his last words repeated over and over again, it's better this way. It's better this way. It's better this way. That's how he finished his life. He got it by grace. He got Philippians 1, 21. We're to get it too. God wants us to get this and understand it and to see its fruit in our lives, not only uh, when it's time to die, but when it's time to live. And, and I don't have time to go into it, but, but we see in this passage a heart for mission that flows out of Paul's life. Because he knows to live is Christ and to die is gain, he has a heart for mission. He sees his life as mission. I'm here to produce fruit for the Lord. And his particular call was as an apostle. He had a call there to build people in the gospel, to plant churches and see those churches be healthy and plant others and to go around doing that. That was his call. But we all have a call as well. And we, may not, we are not apostles like Paul, uh, but we have different calls in different places. And, and when we get... This verse, when we get verse 21, we too will have a heart for mission. We will see that our lives are about producing fruit for the Lord while we're here. And then when we're done, we get to be with the Lord. So life is fruitfulness. Life is loving our children and our spouses and learning to build a relationship around Christ where, where our life is Christ, but it manifests itself in how we relate in our marriage. It's about relating to our children and children relating to parents with Christ at the center and the fruit that that produces. It's about life in the local church and being knit together, one with another. 
speaking the truth and love to one another, reminding each other of the gospel, using our gifts. For some of you, perhaps, the mission you're called to is to plug in with your gifts in a way that maybe you never have before. Your mission is your job, your vocation. It is school. It is reaching out to your neighbors with the gospel. It's loving them and meeting needs. All these things are, we see in Scripture are part of the mission that flows as Christ manifests his life in us and through us in mission. This is how Paul saw his life. It's how we are to see our lives as well. To live is Christ. To die is gain. I don't have time to talk about Adoniram Judson, maybe briefly. He's a young man sent right from here, his wife, uh, Anne Heseltine, grew up in Bradford. He was a gifted young man, and he got this. And so he did some really crazy things. He got, on, he got married in, right around this time, 200 years ago, got on a ship and went to Burma. And in those days... There basically were no Christians in Burma, and it was a crazy place. He went there, and you can actually, uh, if I had time, I'd read his letter. He wrote a letter to his uh, prospective father-in-law. And in that letter, you can, you can access it um, online. He basically says, can I have your daughter's hand in marriage? And then he goes on to say what it's going to mean. It's going to mean deprivation. It may mean death, disease. All these things. It may mean sickness. You may never see her again. You probably won't ever see her again. But it also means the gospel going forth and lives being changed. And it means on, on the, the day that we're with the Lord, a crown of glory that she gets to wear and that you get to wear by grace, but also through the fruit of your life. And so he wrote this letter. Imagine that. Imagine as a dad getting, can I have your daughter's hand in marriage? And by the way, it's going to mean all these things. Why did he do it? Well, he says in the letter, in another letter, you can see he got Philippians 1, 21. And Anne, his fiance, got it. They knew that to live is Christ and to die is gain, so they were willing to do crazy things. And it was crazy to do what they did. But God used them tremendously. The Bible that's used today in Burma comes from Adoniram Judson. There are thousands of churches that, that credit him with starting them, more or less. And we're not necessarily called to be Adoniram Judson. He was hung upside down for 20 months every night. And you probably won't ever get hung upside down overnight. Um, but you have a mission as well. You have a call. You have things in life he calls you to. And he calls you to the same motto. And if the band could come up as we close. The same motto. To live is Christ. To die is gain. To find yourself in him to treasure Christ, to rely on Him, to rely on His grace, to live by His grace, what He's done for you, and that He's your righteousness. He's your all in all. So as these guys come up, let, let's just take a minute to think about this, to examine our hearts, and maybe just to close our eyes. And as it is fitting to say to the Lord, Lord, change me. Lord, forgive me for how I have said to live is something else. I receive that forgiveness that you purchased for me so I could be clean. Now give me power in your Holy Spirit to treasure you and to be able to say by grace, to live is Christ, to die is gain.